Well, good morning. So good to see you today. I guess there are two roads in just about every decision, huh? May our kids choose the hard path of obeying us all the time. <laughs> Anyone else? Can I get an amen? <laughs> oh, fun stuff. Well, my name's Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney Free. If we haven't yet met, I'd love to connect you up to the service. Welcome to everyone who's watching online today. And so grateful that you chose to join us here for those who are able to make it. The sun came out. Mm. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 7 today in which um, we continue with this series, Two Roads, Choosing the Hard Path of Jesus When Cultural Religion is Just So Easy. And um, I need your forgiveness on the front end. I've been sick the past few days, and so I might sit on a stool I might cough a little bit. You're going to get old man preacher today. Um, But hopefully not too much stool. We'll see. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, if you want to turn there, in the New Testament. First book of the New Testament, and here's Jesus. And this is really kind of the springboard passage for the entirety of the series, Two Roads, because the simple fact is we really have a couple different decisions across all of life. And um, what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is He's giving these four pictorial contrasts that give the difference between a life that is dedicated to Christ and living on the narrow road, the life of discipleship, and a much wider road. And he does that through four different pictorial contrasts, which I'll read in just a moment. But let me just paint the picture here for just a moment. He begins by saying there's a narrow road that leads to abundant life. And there's a wide road that leads to destruction. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And the wide road is basically I'm looking out for me, myself, and I. And the narrow road is I'm looking out for Jesus and I'm seeking to follow him in everything. And then he gives these two contrasts between the good free, good free, the good tree. (laughs) Did I warn you already? (laughs) The good free. Between the good tree that produces good fruit. Amen. And the bad tree that produces bad fruit. And then he goes on to give this contrast between two different kinds of people at the end of their lives. And one group of people that comes before him at the end of their lives, and he says, oh, come on in, share my happiness, share my joy, share my life in abundance now and forevermore, welcome. Another group of people that comes to him at the end, and he says, I'm sorry, I just didn't know you. I just didn't know you. Yeah, but no, you were just playing church. I didn't know you. And then finally, there's a fourth pictorial contrast of two different kinds of foundations that we have when the storms of life come to us. And there's one foundation, though, that's built on sand, and another foundation, though, that's built on the rock. And when the storms of life come to us, which are coming to all of us, we've all either just gotten out of a storm or right in the middle of a storm, or else we're going into a storm. Isn't that right? Happy Sunday. There you go. Okay, like it's, it's true for all of us. We're getting out of one, right in one, or we're going into one. The storms of life are coming to the righteous and the unrighteous alike, and the difference is what you build your house upon, either sand or rock. These are the contrasts that Jesus gives. Follow me now. 
in Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, give ourselves to you here at the beginning of this message as we open up your word we confess to you that um, you, Lord Jesus, have backed up all of your words. You didn't just say these things, you backed them up by dying for us, showing us the full measure of the Father's love, and then raising again. The grave could not hold you, you rose to life. And because you rose to life, we trust in you. We trust what your words say. You are the resurrection and the life. And so we want to follow you, even when we're not really sure what something means, even when it's kind of hard, we want to follow you. And so we're asking today, Lord, that you give us a humility to receive your word from this scripture. And Jesus, we, we say together, we want to be on your narrow path, and uh, we ask God that you would challenge us if we need to be challenged today, comfort us if we need to be comforted today. We give ourselves to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, through these four different portraits, Jesus basically is saying, you got to choose, right? He's basically saying, no one's just going to drift into the kingdom of heaven. He's saying no one's going to accidentally fall into discipleship. There is no real middle way. There's nothing really called cultural Christianity. I mean, we may have a cultural Christianity to some degree in the Midwest and the South, but it's meaningless to Jesus. There is no middle road. What he confronts us with is a decision to follow him or not. These portraits confront a modern myth that has developed in America, perhaps over the past generation or so, that God's main aim in sending His Son is to make you happy, especially me. Like, yeah, I'd like some of that, please, yes, please. There's a growing strand of Christian teaching, especially well, when you turn on the television and in many bookstores as well that seems to be all around, God just really, really wants you to be prosperous and, and happy. You see this in so many different book titles that have come out 
over these past years, here are a few of them, your best life now. You're supposed to be wealthy. Didn't you know? You're supposed to, I I don't remember Jesus saying that. You're supposed to be wealthy. And here's my favorite, have a new husband by Friday. (laughs) Ladies, don't. Okay, Susie tried that. It didn't work, right, hon? It just didn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. This immediate gratification thing, give it to me yesterday, give it to me now, that just doesn't work. I mean, this is sad. This is seriously sad to reduce Jesus to that stuff. You read the Sermon on the Mount, you will see nothing of this sort. The Sermon on the Mount was the definitive teaching of Jesus, his longest sermon It's the greatest explanation of what real life really looks like and what Jesus really invites us to. And what we need to do as Christians, what we need to do as the church, is state again once and for all what Jesus really came to do and what Jesus really did not come to do. Here's what Jesus didn't come to do. He did not come primarily to dispense of happiness tickets. He didn't come to kind of just hand out to each of us happiness tickets. And happiness, sadly, has become like this truncated, miniature version of the American dream. It really wasn't always that way. You ask Americans in generations past, what is the good life? They would typically say it's a life of deferred gratification that occurs through perseverance, and hard work and great effort that leads to becoming a person of goodness and of integrity. In this past generation, it's changed. In fact, there's a well-known radio personality who's done a survey of hundreds and hundreds of people over the past couple decades in which he's asked them, what is the one thing your parents most wanted for you as you were growing up? Was it success, wealth, happiness, or goodness? Otherwise called integrity, being above reproach. And generations past, the answer would have almost always been goodness, integrity, being a person of character, above reproach. Today, 85% of respondents to that survey said, my parents wanted me to be happy. That's the main thing they wanted for me. You multiply this over the past generation, and almost all talk of perseverance, of suffering for something that is great of picking up a cross and saying, I will follow even when it's hard, has kind of gone by the wayside. And what is left is, give me a large helping of happiness with a little bit of Jesus on the side. And again, sadly, the church has begun to mimic this. I'll share with you one quote from one well-known pastor to summarize. Just do good for yourself, he says. Just do good for yourself. Do good for you because God wants you to be happy. When you worship him, you're not doing it for him. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Wow, I I missed that in my Bible. You know, all my seminary work, all my study in multiple languages, I I just have never seen that. I missed that. So, So what? What's the problem, Adrian? Why are you being such a killjoy? Are you trying to be the commissioner of the NFL? No fun league, Adrian. No, I I mean, I'd rather have some happiness than not have some happiness. Just like you. 
I'd rather have some fun than not have any fun. Just like you, we're all the same. The problem is it's the wrong target. It's just the wrong target. If you aim in the wrong direction, you will end in the wrong destination. It's the wrong target. And if you look at the carnage of what has happened in our culture over the past generation of pursuing happiness as the primary target of life, pursuing pleasurable satisfaction, here is the result. It's, let me drink some more of this alcohol. Let me get drunk a little bit more and and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And if that's not providing me with happiness any longer, then let me get high on something stronger. And it turns into this roller coaster of life in which we have a subculture called bucket lists. Have you noticed? Right, I, I, like, I have a, I don't really have a bucket list, but I have some things I'd like to do. Just like you, have some things that you'd like to do. But we have like a subculture around bucket lists in our culture, which is going from one extreme sport to another extreme sport, from one extreme experience to another extreme experience, all because the previous one wasn't extreme enough. And it leads to a life that is a roller coaster, and it ends up in, well, my wife really isn't satisfying me anymore. My husband really isn't satisfying me anymore. I like Jesus, yeah, but, you know, he's really not doing it for me anymore. This is what happens. It leads to an empty self of consumerism in which all of life, my finances, my work, my family, even God himself is about feeding me. It, it turns into this life of consumerism that I have to constantly be fed, at least this empty, narcissistic self that everything is about my happiness, and it results in dissatisfaction with marriage and parenting and finances and even God himself. It leads to legions of Hollywood personalities addicted and flaming out. It leads to legions of young and old people crippled by anxiety and comparison. I'm not getting mine. I need to get more. I'm dissatisfied and I'm empty. And it comes from shooting at the wrong target. We have to identify where this comes from. Happiness is a very nice byproduct, but it can't be the main target. The main target, again, as we talked about these previous weeks, and we'll talk about a little bit more here today, is apprentices of Jesus, the holiness of God, its truth, its pursuing Him with all that he has given us. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. This was back about 50 years ago Well, when he wrote the book, The Case for Christianity. Wonderful little book that many people haven't read, but it's a wonderful little apology for, Christi- for Christianity, apologetics book for Christianity that defends the truthfulness of Christianity. And here's, here's what Lewis said some 50 years ago. He says, if you're looking for truth, you may in the end find some comfort. Comfort was his word for pleasure. You're looking for truth, you may in the end find some pleasure. If you're looking for pleasure or comfort, you will, get, you will not get either comfort or truth. You're not going to get either if you aim at pleasure. Only soft soap <laughs> and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Happiness or pleasure or comfort is a wonderful byproduct of the pursuit of of truth and holiness and apprenticeship to Jesus, but it cannot be the target of our lives. 
As Jesus has said in this very passage, you just look at, at verse 14, narrow is the road that leads to life. Narrow is the road. The life of obedience leads us in the pathway of abundance. The pathway of obedience, rather, leads us in the life of abundance. We've been talking about that throughout this, throughout this series. You stand the narrow path of obedience that will lead you, though it's difficult, to the life of genuine, long-term, delayed gratification abundance. Every good tree bears good fruit over time. Over time, getting the soul right leads to good fruit. And not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, verse 21, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. This is what he's after. He's after obedience, the narrow road, apprentices, uh, apprenticeship, discipleship, holiness, pursuing the truth of Christ, and then everything else follows after that. Okay? So he did not come, dispel of the notion that Jesus came to make me happy. Just dispel of it. If you see that as a secondary byproduct, you, you'll probably get some of that. But if you focus on what he came to bring us, then over time we'll get a real rich, abundant life. And oftentimes, out of that will bring uh, substantial joy as well. Jesus didn't come to hand out happiness tickets. If you're taking notes here, Jesus came to make apprentices who would change the world. The, the word in Jesus' day, of course, was disciple. But we don't use that too much today, so I've substituted that for apprentice, and they have the same meaning. A disciple is one who does just what their teacher gives them to do. An apprentice, imagine you've heard of a master electrician, for example, and an apprentice electrician. Well, what does that apprentice electrician do? Everything that the master electrician does. He sees the way he goes about his bids, and he copies that. He sees the way he does his work, and he copies that. He learns from the master electrician, and he walks in his steps, and he does what he does, and that's part of his apprenticeship, and that's what we're invited to do with Jesus. There was a saying at the time of Jesus that went like this, cover yourself with the dust of your rabbi's feet. Think of that. Cover yourself that you are so up close personal with Jesus. You are so close to him that the dust of his feet kind of just sprinkles over you. And the result is because we are all his apprentices, we are covering ourselves in the dust of our rabbi's feet, we can change the world. All of us are being affected by him. All of us are basking in his presence, doing what he told us to do, saying things that he told us to say, acting in a way that he did, enjoying his presence, being so close to him that we can change Buffalo County, that we could change Nebraska, that we even could have ripple effects that would go out into Magongay and to all the world, to Chicago. Who knows where God might send you as you say God makes me to be his apprentice. To go out. I mean, these are the final words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. I don't know about you, I listened to a man's last words. Jesus' final words before he went to heaven. Therefore, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations. First, by baptizing them. That means identification. You get identified with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that he's put a seal of approval on you, that you belong to him. That's, that, that's the waters of baptism. It's like the seal of a wedding ring. Oh, I belong to Jesus. First, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then, by teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Everything. Obey everything that I have commanded you. And no. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Do you see? Do you see? Apprentices. 
that are with Jesus, that are obeying him completely. And we begin to change our little worlds through him. Now, you can't read this passage, though, that we're in, in Matthew 7, without dealing with this very difficult question, in which verse 21, he says, I assure you, at the end, some people will come to me, and, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I, I didn't know you. What's up with that? How could that be? How could people say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, and he say back to them, I, I just didn't know you? Well, we know it could be, don't we? You just look at the 12 disciples, and you see one who walked in the steps of a rabbi for a few years. You see one who saw the wonderful miracles that Jesus did. Maybe he even did some miracles of his own. We don't know. But he was there with Jesus for those three and a half years. He listened to all of his beautiful teachings. He saw the way he changed lives. He witnessed the conversion that other people went through. But he never knew Jesus. Who am I talking about? Judas, right? He was there with Jesus along the way and never knew him. You see, Judas serves as a warning sign to us that we are not to just play church. Judas serves as a warning sign to us that we could do great things, but we won't be able to stand before God and say, I was a good person. Judas serves as a warning sign to us that it's not sufficient to say, well, I'm an American, or I'm a Republican, or I'm whatever. It, none of that is sufficient. Jesus serves a warning sign, Judas serves a warning sign to us that we can't say, well, I'm not an atheist, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Muslim, so I must be a Christian. My parents were Christians, so I must be a Christian. No, there are some people, I can assure you, there are some people who are riding on the coattails of that to whom Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, I never knew you. You never actually surrendered the reins of your heart, and that's what it comes down to. That is the word. It's surrender. You never actually surrendered the reins of your heart over to me. You just kind of got swept up in cultural religion that was so easy when a narrow road woe was presented to you. Now, that's not my word. I, I wouldn't have the guts to say that. That's Jesus' word. That is Jesus' word. And for me not to say that to you would be the most unloving thing I could possibly do. It truly would be the most unloving thing I could possibly do to not say that as we come to this passage. That some of us, perhaps even in this room today, need to do a reckoning. I don't know that for sure, but perhaps even in this room today need to do a reckoning. Are there indicators of my being a genuine apprentice of Jesus in my life? And so that's what I want to do here for the remainder of our time, is just give a few indicators that you are genuine disciples of Christ, that you are genuine apprentices of Christ. Or perhaps you, know, you would look at these and you'd say, no, I'm not sure that I am. And so I need to bow in a, in a real authentic way to Christ as my Lord even today. So here are a few indicators. You know, this also is something that's gone by the wayside in our current culture. Uh, previous generations of Christians always understood that while salvation is by grace through faith, it's wise for us to do an examination from time to time and ask, am I really in the faith? 
Previous generations always did that. Our generation has kind of lost that. It's wise to examine where's the fruit on my tree. So let's, let's talk about that just a little bit. Three indicators that you are an apprentice of Christ. The first one is this. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is growing in you. It's not that it's all there, but the fruit of the Spirit is growing in you. The tree and the fruit in Jesus' analogy is just saying what every single one of us have observed. And it's this. If you want to know what people really believe, don't just listen to what they say, watch what they do. Or put another way, if you want to know what people really believe, don't just listen to what they say, listen to how they say it. Is there a fragrance of kindness? Is there a fragrance of love? Is there a desire to be loving to other people that are made in the image of God? You you, you notice how people live, and that's an indicator of the tree, what kind of tree that it is. The roots of the tree, in Jesus' analogy, analogy, are the soul. The roots is the soul. The fruit of course, is Christian character. It's the beauty of Christian character coming out of these branches. And the most beautiful description of character that I have ever read, and one that I try to go back to again, and I encourage every person in this room to memorize, comes from Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. And basically what it's saying is this, that if we tend to the roots of our soul, then this will be the fruit that grows from our trees. Not all at once, but slowly over time, the more we bask in the presence of Jesus and enjoy the Holy Spirit that is ours, that lives within us by faith in Jesus, we start to demonstrate this kind of life. Again, not all at once, and it's not saying that you're going to get there perfectly ever this side of heaven. I don't think that any of us will. But we increasingly grow in becoming people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You see someone like that and you say, wow, how beautiful, how stunning. And Jesus would indicate that a good tree is known by this kind of fruit. Hear him again in verse 17. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Now, um, anyone have any fruit trees in the yard? Raise your hand if you do. A few. Do your fruit trees ever produce bad, bad fruit, even though they're good trees? I see some people nodding. Okay, so like, who am I to disagree with Jesus? But, okay, stick with me. Good trees will sometimes produce some bad fruit. Okay? What Jesus is talking about here is that if your roots are good, then in general, there will be lots of good fruit that comes from that tree. But if you tend to trees in your yard, you know that sometimes really, really good trees will produce a bad apple. It's not that if you're in Christ, you don't produce any bad apples anymore. It's that you open yourself to God and you say to him, God, if you need to prune me of these branches that are not producing fruit, then by all means, God, go ahead and do so. Because all of us who are in Christ will indeed produce some bad fruit from time to time. But the difference between those of us who are disciples of Christ and those who are not is when we see bad fruit growing from our branches, we hate it. We pick it off and we throw it in the compost bin where it belongs. Okay? The difference between those who are disciples of Christ and those who are not, as my friend Tim Strattonlow likes to say, is disciples of Christ hate their sin. It's not that we don't sin anymore, it's that we hate our sin. 
So, for example, while I'm up on stage and you're all looking at me, I had an instance yesterday where I had a harsh tone with someone I love. And I deeply regret that. And I tell you, before I was a, a Christian, I'd say, well, what's the big deal? But now that I am a Christian, now that I am a disciple of Christ, I realize it's a really big deal. And I hate that. And so I pick it off the branch and throw it in the compost as quickly as I possibly can and dwell with Christ. I need to genuinely grow with Him, genuinely trust in Him. And by our fruit, we are known, maybe not all at once, but slowly and surely, this is an indication that we are genuine disciples, that we are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Another indication with it, that we hate our sin when we see our sin. Here's another one as you're taking notes. Uh, Non-Christians will, will find you to be loving. Here's an indication, though, that you're a follower of Christ. People will find you to be loving. People who are not Christians will find you to be loving. People who are Christians will find you to be loving. People who like you will find you to be loving. People who don't like you will find you to be loving. We will stand out from the crowd because we love Christ more than we love the crowd, but we will also stand out from the crowd, perhaps even more, because we're loving even to those who don't like us. We're loving even to those who don't like Jesus. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before people, all different kinds of people, that they may see your good deeds, they may see my good deeds, and they may glorify the Father in heaven, but because they say, wow, how could that be coming from them? There's something so unique, something so solid, something so reliable in them. They're not just ginning it up anymore. What is it in them? Oh, glorify God in heaven. It's the Holy Spirit in them. Let, let me talk to them a little bit more and learn about that. Let your light so shine before all different kinds of people. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Or how about Jesus? Well, when he gathers his 12 disciples to him, just before he's about to go up to the cross, and he washes their feet, he turns the Passover into communion, and he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone, underline your Bible, everyone. Everyone means everyone. All people means all people. Everyone will know that you are my disciples by the way you, what is it? By the way you love. I, I don't know what happened, but somewhere in the past 10, 15 years, something's happened. The Christians, unfortunately, have started to develop a reputation more for what we're against than what we're for. And Christians have started to develop a reputation more for wanting to be right than needing to be loving. And I don't know how that happened, I don't know where that happened, but we are to be known for love. First and foremost, before anything else, people should be able to say, oh man, I disagree with them so much, but they're so stinking loving that I can't dispel that. It's incredible the way they love people. They're so different. That's the way the early church made the difference to turn the Roman Empire upside down. It was a pagan empire, but because Christians rescued babies. Because the Christians nursed the sick to health. They turned the Roman Empire upside down because they were loving. Friends, if you're a conservative, liberals should say of you, you are so loving. If you're a liberal, conservatives should say of you, he is so loving. She is so loving. Non-Christians should say of you, 
man, they're not very argumentative. My, they know how to listen. My, they know how to find common ground. My, they know how to apologize when they did something wrong. My, they know how to forgive. My, how generous of spirit they are, even when I disagree. You see, non-Christians should be envious of the way we love one another. And they should be stunned by the way we love them. That's a second indicator. Non-Christians and Christians and friends and enemies should find you to be loving. And then finally, we are growing in obedience to God's truth. We're just growing in obedience to God's truth. Jesus doesn't expect any of us to be put together. We are all in process. We always will be. But there's a, a new want to, a newfound want to in our souls that I want to follow you, Jesus. I desire to do your will. I won't get it right 100% of the time, but I want to follow your will, Jesus. I want to obey you. Jesus said this in John 8, 31. If you hold to my teaching, then you are truly my disciples. If you hold to what I have said, if you want to follow me, if you seek to obey me even when it's hard, then you're really my disciples. Matthew 7, 21, once again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. One of the strongest indicators that you're a genuine follower of Christ is a want to do his will. I want to obey him, even when it's hard, even when it's on the narrow road. That's one of the strongest indicators that it would be really easy for me to go here, but instead I'm going to follow Jesus while when it's hard over here. There's three great indicators that you can say, as I see these things in my life, I, I can know that, that I am indeed, by grace, his follower, that there's growing fruit on these branches. That there's love in my life for all kinds of people. There's growing love and there's a growing obedience. And none of us are going to be there completely this side of heaven, but it's this progressive, ongoing growth in obedience and holiness of being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And I just want to tell you as pastor here at this church, I've been so blessed and so incredibly encouraged in the past couple of months to hear from people again and again and again who are making small but significant decisions to grow in their discipleship to Christ. And it encourages me so much to hear these stories of people who say, I, I need to bask in his love more, and if I don't, I won't demonstrate his love to others. And let me share with you a couple examples Bob, before I wrap up. Two or three different families have come to me independently and said, we have taken the charge to read through the New Testament together as a family this year, and every single night as a family, we're reading through a chapter of the Bible and discussing it together. That's tending to the roots on the tree. There's a young woman who recently made a commitment to Jesus here in this church a couple months ago, and she made a decision after making this commitment to Christ for the very first time. She hasn't been around church her whole life, raised right here in this area, and yet she hadn't been around church her whole life. She makes a commitment to Christ, and she, she makes this decision. I'm going to be in church every Sunday because I need to learn. I need to grow in him. That's tending to the roots. A successful businessman has committed himself to waking up at 5.30 a.m. rather than 6 a.m. He wrote to me, although I really dislike 5.30 a.m., I am loving my time in the word and prayer. <laughs> Another business leader took time to confess to a small group of friends. He said this, I have been holding resentment in my heart toward a number of other people, and I need to confess that to you and ask for your prayers. Would you please 
help me, dear God. He confessed it to a group of friends. Would you all pray for me as I've been holding resentment in my heart? There's an excellent athlete in our church that I was talking to just this past week. And he said he used to be in the habit of giving a glare to the referee when they made a call that he didn't like. Or maybe chirping a little bit to the referee. Any parents know what I'm talking about in here? Any athletes in here know what I'm talking about? And he made a decision, a holy decision. I am not going to stare at the referees anymore. I am not going to talk back at the referees anymore. That is a holy decision to follow Christ. One man in this room noticed that his Twitter account had resulted in three things in his life. Emotional fatigue, anger, and a lack of prayerfulness. So over the past 30 days, he pulled the plug on all social media, and he reports that energy and prayer have returned to his life. One young woman said, I'm going to stop gossiping. That's it. I'm asking God's help every day that I would stop gossiping and begin loving others with my mouth. Let your light shine, girl. One life group committed to all putting on in accountability and filtering software on their phones. All of them, together as a group. And I'll help you stay accountable and you help me stay accountable and we'll keep that scourge of pornography off of our eyes. And we will encourage each other and build each other up and pray for one another and we're gonna go after this together because women are made in the image of God and they deserve better than that. And so let's go for it together. I just tell you, man, Keep it up. Those of you who are making these kinds of decisions, these are decisions for the narrow road. Keep it up. Keep basking in the holiness of God, enjoying the presence of God each and every day, receiving his love in so you can give his love out, receiving his forgiveness in so you can give his forgiveness out, making small but meaningful decisions as apprentices of Christ. And together, we might just change this world. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Thank you that he is perfect. And your perfection, Lord Jesus, overcomes our imperfection. And you receive us today by your grace due to nothing on our part. We cannot merit your approval, God. You receive us by your grace through the blood of Jesus, and we thank you for that. But, but Father, we just confess we live in a day of really, really cheap grace. And we live in a day of really easy believism in which people are not serious about obeying you with their whole hearts. And we confess to you, we want to be different than that. We want to be real apprentices of Christ. And sometimes it'll be hard, but we know in the end it'll be best. And so we're asking your help as a church family, Lord. Would you please help us? We're asking your help. 